So the first question I was asked um, by Marjorie um, was, uh, I had said in the message that to a certain extent, money can at times prolong life. I think I said something like that. And she asked me how that, how that, how does that intersect with the fact that the Bible says every one of our days is numbered? In fact, let me back that claim up. The scripture um, and the sovereignty of God. Turn to Psalm 139. Um, we see very clearly a statement um, about the sovereignty of God on, on the length and the span of our life. So if you look at verse 13 and through 16, Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden for you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So a finite, precise number of days is accounted before I was ever born. So how then can I meaningfully speak of, of adding to? I mean, even Jesus, by anxiety, not you can't add one day to your life. The, the short answer would be, when I say with money or with things we do, we can prolong our life, from our vantage point, from this side of... of we see things from, we speak of human responsibility because the Bible teaches real human responsibility. And the Bible teaches that despite the fact that God is absolutely sovereign, that sovereignty never mitigates or removes human responsibility. And so, uh, sure, in one sense I can say, just as the crucifixion was planned from the foundation of the earth, that the recent events with the drone being shot down and the near conflict with Iran was planned before the foundation of the... Sure, I could absolutely agree to that. Wild, meaningfully speaking, of the human agents that acted and caused, meaningfully, the events that took place. So we could say, just like the apostles, you delivered over the author of life, you put him to death, doing exactly what God had predetermined would take place from the foundation of the world. So, humanly speaking, taking medicine and money will... Traditionally, the wealthy can eat cleaner, have better hygiene, eat healthier food, food that's not rotten, have access to better doctors and medical treatment. And so, in a sense, by partaking of those things, can, generally speaking, um, extend to some degree their life. Um, yet, none of that would compromise the fact that every one of their days was written. And Elsa brought the example of even that is their attempts at prolonging life. Steve Jobs with all of his money and getting to the top of a liver transplant list. Nope. So it's not a guarantee, but what I was mainly doing in, in making that point is offering a concession. Because here I'm saying, look, you, you, your money can't save you from death. And I could picture someone saying, well, it might for a few months or a few years, to which I would say, okay, sure, sure. Stalin lived a few more years than the people he murdered, but they're all dead now. And 10 million years from now, he's not going to be holding his comfort. Yes, I'm in hell, but at least I lived a little longer than this other guy. That's going to, offer, it's going to be of zero importance. Um, so that's, that's where I was going when I said that. That's the and I'm just conceding the point that we might be tempted to think, oh, it's easy for me to say that, but if I could have afforded the treatment that this other person 
could afford it, then, then I would have lived longer or my, my child would have lived longer or whatever. Um, certainly living in the first world, we have access to medical treatments and disease prevention that people in other parts of the world do not have. Uh, and I'm just not denying that. But in any sort of meaningful, significant sense, when you start to look at eternity, it is meaningless. Um, oh, you live to be 89 and went to hell. Woohoo! You know, that's, that's the point. Uh, versus, you know, you could live to be 17 and get cut down, and if the Lord is your redeemer, you have life and you have riches. That, that's, that's the point I'm trying to get at. So, humanly speaking, there are things we can do that humanly are going to shorten or lengthen our life, not in, in an absolute sense, and not in any relatively significant sense, and not in a way that in any way undermines the fact that every single one of your days was formed before you lived it. That's what, I'm, what I would say. Any follow-up on that or thoughts on that? Okay, then we'll open it up broader. Yes, Steve. You want no microphone, Steve. Our, our faithful seven or eight podcast listeners want to know what you have to say. <laughs> I discovered that me listening to it doesn't count, Greg. Um, You seem to easily slip into this duality of God is sovereign, but yet we can change things. And, of course, I fight this with my past. Mm. Why did I keep trying to change misery, suffering, and death? Um, In the same sense, why do we pray? Why do we ask God to change his mind? Sure. Why, why do we bring people up that we're concerned about and, mm-hmm. and ask for intervention? Sure. So that's the duality that you usually say, yes. <laughs> okay, then I will just take the easy out and say yes, Steve. No. Um, I, the key issue is, again... We want to draw the conclusions the Bible draws from things. And the Bible used the sovereignty of God not as we might intuit to mitigate, remove, lessen human responsibility, but actually to establish action. So the Apostle Paul, um, I want to say, is it Paul? Is it, or is it first, first Peter? Go to, go to First Peter, I believe. Um, Chapter 1. Let's see if I'm right here. Nope. Titus? Is it Titus? Hold on. Um, It might be Titus. God who cannot lie promised for the ages began. That's what I'm looking for. In the first three or four verses of Titus... Yeah, right there. Verses 1 and 2. So Paul is going to use his confidence in election as his motivation for his ministry, not as a reason he can you know, play another game of golf and relax because after all... I'm just trying to show the Bible doesn't apply it. It takes truths and applies them differently than you and I might be tempted to apply them. That's all I'm trying to show. But it's aware of them. It's not like it's unaware of them. 
Um, so Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and the hopes of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So Paul, his entire ministry, understands, is a ministry of, of bringing the gospel to God's elect. And yet we know how hard Paul works, how, how much he spends himself. So I think Paul's logic is, and I would say one of the things you can do with the sovereignty of God is if God says he's going to accomplish something, then I will gladly give myself to a job and a mission which ultimately cannot fail. Um, there is no promise that my earthly endeavors will succeed, but Christ will build this church and against this the gates of hell will not prevail. So I'll spend my life in the church because here's a project that cannot fail. Um, in a way that mission boards or countries or whatever, businesses can. The church, this church might fail. Hope it won't, you know, but we know from Revelation that the Lord threatens to take away individual lampstands. But the church writ large cannot fail. So you could argue that the sovereignty of God gives confidence for work. But the, uh, the, other, the other place, if you go to Philippians... The, the uh, And I'll just do a brief treatment because this isn't a major part of Psalm 49, but I'll, I'll give a brief tr treatment. Although the very first message in that series I gave you tries to deal with this to some degree. There's a... The, the philosophical category we're dealing with is the issue of what's called compatibilism or non-compatibilism, which is simply the term, um, the jargon that the... Uh, the guild, the philosophical guild, has called this issue. And, the, and what it deals with, compatible or not compatible, is is divine sovereignty compatible? Can it coexist with um, human volition, choice, and effect? And a compatibilist says yes, and a non-compatibilist says no. So to put that another way, the non-compatibilist, which is, I think, what most of us would intuit if we don't think it through carefully, would say divine sovereignty and human responsibility are incompatible notions. Once you've established one, you've nullified the other. So, so a non-compatibilist, these are not biblical categories, these are philosophical categories, but they're concepts the Bible certainly deals with. They're just a name given to them uh, by men, is if, you're, if you don't believe they're compatible notions, then you will assume the duality that says either or. Either God did it or he did it. Either my actions had consequence and effect or God predestined it. Um, and I am a compatibilist, meaning I think, and let me speak clearly, I'm not claiming I can explain how divine sovereignty and human responsibility coexist. I'm simply saying I believe they do. Uh, I can no more explain how they coexist than I can explain how my car engine works, even though I believe it does work. Right? So I can say I believe my car will get me home today, even though I've no sufficient means of explaining to exactly how it has to do with pushing a pedal and turning a wheel. And you know, but beyond that, I'm kind of at a loss. So I can believe a thing works and is, even if I can't explain to you how the thing itself breaks down into parts. So I can say I believe the Bible lays out divine sovereignty as not nullifying, as not um, undermining human responsibility, even while I say I'm not entirely sure how that works. I see no essential contradiction there. And I will freely grant the most, what I would intuit or what I would just jump to would be, well, of course, one nullifies the other. But then you go to, say, Philippians chapter uh, 2. Um, 
And I see, and I can show you a number of examples. And I, so I will freely grant there's a mystery. Like the part where I don't get it, I'm with you. I don't get it. I just believe the boss said this is the way it is. I'm like, okay, that's the way it is. You know what I mean? That's apparently the universe we live in. So Paul will say this in verse um, 12 and 13 in chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Greek word for work is energo. We get our English word energy from it. It's an active term. There's, there's nothing passive about it. Get to work, Paul says. What am I getting to work doing? Working out my salvation. We'd call that, I think, sanctification. Get to work becoming a Christian, you know, acting like a Christian. Get to work doing those things God would have you do. Why should I? Then he gives me a reason why. This is meant to be the motive for why. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And I would assume, if you're telling me, Paul, God will cause me both to want to obey him and to actually obey him, then what do I need to get busy working out for in the why on earth, why not just sort of you know, do what the Keswick's, let go and let God? So apparently the Apostle Paul is a compatibilist. All I mean by that saying is Apostle Paul does not see verse 13 nullifying the command of verse 12. And so as a compatibilist, the theological category, these are just names people come up with. I mean, you name a mystery and you think you understand it. C.S. Lewis famously once made this point talking about how we can fall into the trap of thinking just because we name something we understand it or rule over it. He famously said, to say that birds fly south by instinct is simply to say we don't know why they fly south. Um, no, and, and there's a great truth to that. Naming things, as we see Adam naming the animals or even the woman, is a way of exercising dominion. And so just because you call it concurrence or compatibilism, you've named a mystery, you've not explained it. From theological, concurrence would be speaking of God working sovereignly and effectively and efficiently and the man, the creature, working in a way that actually is causal together in concert with one another. Um, the philosophical view of compatibilism is simply these two concepts are not exclusive. They're not either or. They are compatible. So Paul is able to give this command that I get busy working at the very thing he tells me God is causing me to will and to do. In fact, the reason I'm to get together and work is because... So rather than actually undermining my responsibility, he, he puts it forward as the ground or warrant or motive for my responsibility, which I will freely admit is not intuitive to me. Freely admit that that is not immediately the conclusion I'd come to. Hey, Jeremy, God is going to cause you to desire and to do the things that please him. My initial knee-jerk reaction would not be freely grant, well, then I better get to work, busting my butt, obeying him. That's what Paul says. Um, or go to Genesis 50, 20. This Joseph, I'll, I'll touch on this briefly with the last one I look at. Um, Joseph's statement to his brothers about now we're dealing with sin. We're dealing with their wickedness, with their, um, they, they kidnapped him, they faked his death, and they sold him into slavery. And after Jacob dies, they're afraid Joseph's going to get his revenge. And they come to him pleading and begging. And remember, you promised, Dad, you wouldn't do anything. And Joseph says in verse 19, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And again, I've got these two parallel meanings. 
His brothers meant stuff and God meant stuff in one and the same action. Which would bring me back to your question, Steve. God's sovereignty works through means. So even something as innocuous as God causing a gourd plant to die with Jonah, he did how? How did the, he just, just snap his fingers the plant died? He sent, caused a worm to come up and eat it, right? So God works through means. God carries out his will through means, through, through agency. And so we could meaningfully say that worm killed that plant, and we can meaningfully say God killed that plant. He did it by sending the worm. So I would say, Steve, that God saved life, preserved life, and minimized suffering through your agency. And you did those same things as well. And that's exactly how God accomplished it. Give, you a, give an example. Praying for someone. You bring up the question of praying for someone. So we're praying for um, Ron's friend in hospice to finish well, right? And I could picture saying, well, look, whether or not they're going to finish well has been determined before the foundation of the earth. God's going to give the grace then to finish well, or he's not. You're not going to change God's mind. That would be one way of looking at it. I don't think that's a right way to look at it. Let me flip it this way. Is the desire that Ron's friend finished faithful a good desire? Does, would the Bible indicate that's a good desire, like that desire reflects God's heart or pleases God? Is that a good thing? I would say it is. Where did that good thing on Ron's heart come from? His own righteousness wells up within him, like just right, Ron's righteous heart produced this righteous desire. I would think it's an evidence of the grace of God that this good desire is on Ron's heart because God put this good desire in Ron's heart. So now I think I'm building a framework where you mean the God who sovereignly determines whether Ron's friend will finish faithfully put on Ron's heart the desire to pray that he might finish faithfully. Might this not be the very means by which God intends to cause Ron's friend to be faithful to the end? I'd, if anything, be encouraged. But when I find someone on my heart, when I find someone on my mind, when I'm burdened for them, I'm actually more encouraged that God's going to do the thing I'm asking because why else is this so heavy on my heart? Um, I'm not normally walking around burdened. For, there are some people, some things that I'm just not normally burdened for that if all of a sudden for a few days, I'm just, man, I'm just thinking, praying about this a lot. If anything, I'm becoming more and more hopeful. Like, what are you doing, God? What's going on? You're up to something. I mean, he's always up to something, and it's always good, but maybe you're up to this very good thing that I'm doing. Um, so the other flip side is if God's not sovereign, then we can't meaningfully ask for the very prayer request Ron asked. Because if the flip side is that man's will eliminates the sovereignty of God, then the faithfulness of Ron's friend is entirely up to him. And God can't intervene, or his friend would be a robot. So in one sense, we can only pray Ron's request if we believe in a sovereign God. If God's not sovereign, I mean, if God's not sovereign, we could pray for things like rain or sunshine or you know, things like that. But we can't pray for anything that involves human agency because, after all, human choice eliminates divine choice. And so wherever human choice is involved, God has to definitionally be hands-off. So I freely admit, Steve, there are mysteries here, but going the other side and saying God's not in control doesn't 
doesn't get you out of the hot water pot and it doesn't it creates to some degrees more problems than it solves but mostly i just want to go where the bible goes and so the early church was able in one breath to blame pilate the romans and the jews for killing the messiah even as they credit the act to this god's wise planning council and again i look at it like apparently they don't see it being either or either i guess it's not either or Again, I'm not claiming to understand how that works. I just think it does. Just like I think my car, I'm pretty confident, will get me home today. Um, I'd recommend, if you want to go further, we've got to, I had Mandy make a couple packets of some series we've done. I made a couple packets of our parenting series and a couple packets of the election and predestination series. And I don't know if you've listened to it recently, but the very first message is my attempt to take what I just said in 10 minutes and spend an hour unpacking it. Um, I got some books I can point. We can we can meet and talk. That's about as far as I can go right now. Is that going to do for now, Steve? Yeah, I think I understand it. Um, oh, okay. I, I I would call it schizophrenic. Schizophrenic. Okay. That's cool. And and it can wait till poker night. Okay. Very good, sir. Next question. Oh, Lee. Well, I don't think that's complicated what you're just talking about, because if God has plans, he's not just going to go around sending angels to do it all. He's got to have, I mean, if he's, unless he wants to, we can, but he's going to use humans to fulfill his plans. So, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't seem like rocket science to me, but the other question is uh, the blank. Da, oh. da, da. <laughs> human, human responsibility, divine sovereignty, not rocket science. But this blank <laughs> is vexing me. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Okay, Great. it's uh, three three B the path of upright something. Confidence. Okay. The path of okay. Thank you. Okay. Okay. A and B are both confidence. I think I'm gonna zig and I zag. Um okay. Um, any questions about Ozymandias? He's dead. That's right. Oh, no, Linda had a question. Hold on. Linda's got one. No, I was, as I was reading this psalm, hold on. As I was reading this psalm, my son had to memorize this for part of his school. And, I, and I'm somewhat familiar with it. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, man, I think that's what Ozymandias... And so I looked it up, and it's really short. And it's just a paragraph long. I'm like, that's exactly it. You know, and... Then I thought it'd be cool, but you know, in one sense, nobody knowing it even proves the point further, or how few people are familiar with it proves the point even further. But yes, Linda. Okay, this might tie in a little bit because I think it was around that time you said today that there were kind of, I'm paraphrasing, but no degrees of punishment in hell. No, I did not say no degrees of punishment. Okay. No degrees of glory. They're not big dogs. There are people, hell will be worse for some people than others. Okay. Nobody will have clout, power, reputation, underlings in their thrall. That, that's done. So the picture of like, you know, Stalin in hell in a mansion with other people. No, no, that's no. what I mean. All of that glory, that, that, that's the word that the text used. Their glory will not go with them. They, they, yes, hell will be worse for some people than others. 
there will be no glory and clout in that sense. That does not go with them. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, because I remembered that previously you had oh, said yeah. there would be, and so oh, yes. I was just wanted to... It's, what, the best picture we can get is there's no society in hell. Um, it's outer darkness. It's gnashing of teeth. I, I don't think people are in communion and fellowship and interacting. I, I picture it more like absolute separation and darkness from God and from each other. There are one or two passages that poetically speak of some community, but it's usually mocking a third party. This is the one when this person goes down hell, that those in hell will rise up and they will say, is this the one who shook the earth? Which speaks of them, and it's, it's a word picture of, of showing, again, the same sort of picture. This person thought they were so mighty, but they too died. That's what the only thing I can think of that even suggests any interaction of the, of the people in, in hell. Um, and there, I think it's easy enough to explain. It's just a word picture, but um, that's about it that I can think of to suggest that even the people in hell are aware of each other um, at all. So you hear people like, "I'd rather party in hell." Like, yeah, I could be partying. Um, it's, it's not going to be what's taking place there. Yeah. Okay. Other thoughts, questions. Oh, Jamie. You just blew my mind. Um, how is hell going to be worse for some rather than others? How? Yeah. I mean, I got, I got, where are you drawing I that from? I don't know how. I got some guesses. Okay. That it is, our Lord says, it'll be more bearable in the day of judgment for Sodom than for you, Capernaum. For if the works done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And been established to this day. Now there's Jesus saying, people in Sodom are going to be faring better at the judgment than you, right? And we know there's degrees of reward in, in glory. Now, how, I'm now leaving the text and I'm going to guess. I'll, I'll borrow Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' guess. All God has to do is increase a person's capacity for suffering. Right? Um. So, it's, this is Edward's guess. It's a guess. It's how it could be done. I'm not saying it's how it is done, but just to show it's conceptually a coherent idea, I can give you one conception of how it might be. I'm not saying this is how it is, but if we can come up with at least one coherent conception, it makes it a little easier to believe it will be. Edward likens vessels, buckets, and barrels submerged in an ocean. And in that ocean, he's thinking of it positively, joy. How can there be degrees of, of blessing and joy in heaven without envy, without some people feeling bad? And he says, in the infinite ocean of God's goodness and love, all vessels are full if they're submerged, but some vessels are more full than others. A bathtub's got more water in it than a bucket, right? Um, they're all full. No one could be any happier, but some's capacity is bigger. Another, another thing I, I, I construct positively is that in Edwards takes this and Piper runs with it further. One of the, one of the, and you got to be careful with guesswork and, and logic because it only goes so far. And so I want to throw this out and freely admit, maybe, you know, not this is the way it is. But if, if every day, if God's glory is infinite and every day we are learning new glories of God, there's one way that every day can be better than the last. I know him more and more and more fully, more fully. I'm learning more and I'm never getting bored. I'm never running out of things. Well, what if some people's pace is quicker than others? 
what, what if like, the concept is you're pouring an infinite amount of the knowledge of God into this container, but some people are pouring it faster than others. Some, some's getting more in there than others. We're all going to the same place. All of us are growing in our knowledge of him. All of us are no longer seeing through a glass darkly. We're knowing face to face. But some of well, what if you flip that upside down, invert that now with hell? You know, um, there's conceptual ways that could happen. I don't know how it happens, but it, it, with Jesus' statements and some other statements, it is clear, I think, biblically, there are degrees of punishment. How God does that, I don't know. But at least one coherent suggestion has been made by Jonathan Edwards, which I'll throw out there as a, yeah, maybe, who knows. Okay? Okay. Next question. Oh, Renee Lucia, who saved my daughter's life. Well, God used her to save my daughter's life. My daughter stopped breathing at Camp Apennus, and Renee uh, gave her a rescue breath. Um, she had a uh, febric seizure, febril seizure, and uh, Renee was on hand. Cometh the hour, cometh the woman. <laughs> to God be the glory, really. Um, since hell was brought up, I have a question about what seems to be happening in our society. The um, <laughs> Okay, we've connected some dots I did not see getting connected. Let's the, go. Let's do this. The preoccupation with zombie movies. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I will offer my purest thought. I read an article um, talking about that. Uh, here's my simple, simple, short answer. We are not going off on a big tangent on this especially in a more postmodern culture where people are told ethics are relative and stuff, um, I, I think it's a, it's a way of manifesting our understanding that we deserve judgment. I mean, all these movies have, whether the pandemics or whatever, we will, our, the whole narrative that all these movies portray is we're moments away from this tidal wave of judgment and death hitting us. And I think that resonates and rings true in people's hearts. So we, we envision it being aliens, or disease, or zombies, or a meteor, or climate change, or whatever. But we're constantly coming back to this notion of this apocalyptic event, right? That's the language people use. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense to me. Someone's reading this article. He's also suggesting that's why some horror movies, and even Stephen King books and stuff are popular, because in them, at least, evil is evil. There's clearly seen lines of what's evil. It's, the point of a horror movie is not to understand Jason Voorhees' psychology and understand from his perspective his mass murders kind of make... No, he's the bad guy, right? He's the epitome of bad. And then these people you know, try to survive him. And people hung, are hungry for some stories where the bad guy's bad. And I don't need to worry about the various shades of gray in between. And, and uh, I think there's probably something to that, too, but it's speculation. But those speculations, when I read them, yeah, there might be something to that. I don't know if we can say much more than that, but you're right. Well, um, so how would you reason with, like, a teenager who seems very preoccupied with zombie movies um, to encourage them in Christianity and pursuing God and a godly life? That's an interesting question. Uh, Depends how reasonable they are. It depends how self-aware they are. Most of us don't even know why we like the things we like. I mean, who, who, who can, I mean, some people can. Other people, I don't know why I just like this. And so if I deal with the teenagers, like, I don't know, I just like them. 
then I probably have a difficult time saying, don't you think it's a manifestation of your awareness of coming judgment and your preoccupation with it? They're probably like, no, I just like it, dude, because they're cool. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that'd be a useful, if they were self-aware enough to have some estimation as to why they liked it, I might try to have that discussion with them. But otherwise, they just present the gospel to them. I mean, it's not like the, we don't have like the gospel for zombie lovers and the gospel for Muslims <laughs> and the gospel for, you know, it's one of the things I really like about Tabidi's book on the gospel for Muslims, the whole first chapter is there is no gospel for Muslims, there's the gospel. And then he talks about there are, there are, Islam has got grasp on some things that are less twisted than others. So a Muslim's going to get righteousness and judgment. They're, pretty, they're probably going to get that. Now, they will be slightly warped, but those are not going to be foreign concepts to a Muslim like they would be to a postmodern. But judgment, values are relative. You know? So he's mainly highlighting in that book what truths are going to be most in line with our system and what are going to be the hardest sell. But there's just the gospel. So yes. I don't have any particular advice for evangelizing people like zombie movies. <laughs> Thank you. Where, where, I usually try to pre- no, where I usually try to press anybody I'm talking to if an evangelism is to get them to do they see judgment. Um, I think I told you about the, the Odinist I spoke with. Um, he was a worshiper of Odin. Kid you not, you meet strange people in L.A. Um, and no... And so he was homeless, alcoholic guy. And um, he was young in a backpack. He was tan. And I invited him to my home, and we were talking and gave him a meal and just was trying to talk to him. And, and he was, I'm a Wodenist. Except I read a couple books in North mythology when I was a kid. So I'm like, really? And so I'm pressing him in his system. That's fascinating. I have never met a Wodenist. We got a day of the week named after Odin. You guys know that Wednesday is Odwin's day. That's the origin of that name, Odin. Um, and Thor's day, and Frigga's day, and then it goes Roman with Saturn's day. But yeah, anyway, Wednesday is Odin's day. And um, no, absolutely, that's the origin of Wednesday. Um, and so I'm talking to him, and I'm pressing him for judgment, because I know that in Norse mythology, there's an event called Ragnarok that's coming, and there is a judgment, and that Loki, the god of mischief, is being tormented under a dripping snake of venom tied to a rock by the entrails of his son as he awaits the coming day of judgment. And I'm pressing this guy to see if he knows that. Because I'm looking for his system. Tell me how your system deals with sin. Tell me how your system deals with sin. I know it doesn't. So tell me. And, I'm pre- and he was just a little surprised that I knew this stuff. And I'm like, so what is Odin going to do to you in your system? What's Odin going to do to you if you do bad stuff? Oh, nothing. What are you talking about? He ties Loki to a rock with the entrails of his kid. You think he's going to let you go? Come on. And this guy was just like... You got out of my house, but um, <laughs> and I'm like, no, because I'm pressed, because I want to, because that's my, that's, it's even with this psalm, I'll get back to this, we'll tie it back to Psalm 49. Who's going to ransom your soul? Do you, do you know you need a ransom? That's where I'm pressing him. Does he, does he deal with that? And he, he didn't. I think he just basically uses, I think he liked to view himself as a Viking. As he left my house, he broke into my car and some other people's cars in our parking lot and stole stuff. And I think, no, I think, I'm not mocking him now. I think he sort of pictures himself like a Viking pillaging. And that's how he's going about his life. I think that's like how he tells himself, I'm not a thief and a vagrant. I'm a, I'm a Viking. You know, we all tell ourselves interesting stories so we can go to sleep at night. But um, that's, that's where I want to press anybody to, is given what they say and given what they know, how do they deal with this? Because I, I don't want to just tell them. I want them to see I got no way of dealing with sin and judgment. And then I can be like, I got away, you know. But 
can I get them to see they have no way of dealing with sin and judgment? Their attempts to deal with sin and judgment are, are obsolete. Um, that's, gen- that's me. That's generally when I try to press someone to ask them questions. Tell me, you know. Because, um, you know, there is no judgment. Okay, then, let, then basically Stalin gets away with it, right? I mean, and we, the smart person does what Stalin does. You just don't get caught, but you kill and you, you abuse and you mistreat people. And as long as you get away with it, you win, right? No. Well, why not? If there is no judgment, why not? You got no reason why not. So what's your complaint against Stalin? What's your complaint against Pol Pot? What's your complaint against Kim Jong-un? What, are you saying anything more than I don't like it when you're saying what he's doing is wrong? Is all you're saying or the America is saying is I don't like it and a bunch of us don't like it? Is that all we're saying? Well, that just gets down to Mike Mates right because, okay, stop me and we'll try to stop him. But we're not speaking in any ethical category if, it's, if there is no judgment, Right? I mean, that's, that's the types of things I'll at least try to talk to someone about, get them to see, like, your system doesn't deal with this. You can't deal with reality, uh, and you need to. But anyway, um, that's the zombie answer question. Tied back to Psalm 40, 49. Okay, 10 minutes. Any other, any other questions, zombie-related or otherwise? Oh, Al Ostrander. Just couldn't let the zombie stuff go. Okay. <clears throat> So I am not a uh, watcher of any of those. I think they're ridiculous. But the other thing I think it does is <laughs> okay. it, it, it does two things at once. It minimizes death. It trivializes life. Mm. And it, it, you watch enough of those, and it, it, it just, it's like, well, there's just another dead person. There's, you know, so what? I mean, death, there is no... Kind of like you were just saying, there is no consequence to anything. It's just death. It's just it's it's almost like a fun game. I mean, it's almost like okay, no big deal, um, but obviously, very much trivializes life as well. So it, it to me, it's a really uh, it's a strange phenomenon that just I think uh, brings society to a an uncaring place, uh, in my opinion. But uh, anyway. Just, a, just an observation. No, no, I, th- I do think that is the other piece because one, one of the things zombie movies prove so well, if you've seen any, is getting back to Psalm 49. Um, any person can succumb, and so you can have a character early in the movie who's powerful, who's rich, who later is just a mindless zombie running around next to the other mindless zombies. And so I, I, I think that there's a sense in which so postmodernism gets the sort of existential dread this sense of we're just, there's this hostile universe that doesn't care about me, and at any moment we should die because after all we're an accident and we really shouldn't be here in the first place. And I think some, some of that stuff comes out there too, the chaos, the, the flipping upside downs, um, somebody who's rich and powerful is just a mindless thing next to them. I mean, they like showing those sort of shocking moments in those shows where you know you, you see in the midst of a horde of a thousand some character from previously like oh they got you know now they're just this faceless thing in the swarm. Um, I may have seen one or two zombie movies. <laughs> you probably probably I've, seen I, more I've than heard I have. That's what takes place in yeah. some of them. Um, but but no, I, 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 it's interesting to me that we don't have to be hard persuaded that epochal cataclysmic apocalyptic events are just around the corner for us. Um, we don't, right, during modernism, 
where we were amazed with ourselves and, and uh, secular humanism was big and we're creating, I mean, think of in a period of like 100 years, the technological achievements. I mean, for 1,000, 2,000 years of history, people are driving horses and wagons and we get electricity and we get radios and we get TV and we get cars. I mean, there was a period of time where all this, we were drunk on ourselves. We were drunk on how great man is. I mean, that's Beethoven's ninth, right? You know, Freud, Freud. That, that's, man is awesome. Man is God, man is wonderful. Look at man. And I think that generation of people would be not nearly so easy to believe a zombie apocalypse or a pandemic or something like that is just around the corner. I think those people, that generation, would think, no, we'd find a way to cure it. We'd deal with it. We would conquer and overcome, just like we eradicated these diseases, just like we've harnessed the atom, just like we, you know, I think that's what would come out of modernism. And I, I think um, one of the effects of World War II, the concentration camps, the trench warfare, chemical weapons, is us, well, we're just as likely to produce that. I mean, in one sense, you ever watch Star Trek or Star Trek The Next Generation? In big brushstrokes, that's modernism. The belief that give us enough time and enough information, turn the crank long enough, and eventually we will reach a utopian society. We live in peace, we wear spandex, and there's no money. <laughs> no, but modernism, that's modernism full seed right there. That is the modernist utopia of Star Trek. We'll get past it all, right? The real question is, do you know the prime directive? I, see, I'm not... I, I, yeah... Sorry, sorry, y'all. I do not know the prime directive. Um, but that's, that's the hope. So I don't think all these zombie movies and stuff would be nearly so popular in a modernist society. I, I think that's... It's why you're never going to see a Statue of Liberty again or Mount Rushmore again. It takes people who are full of their own hubris to make these giant things. I mean, can you imagine if someone suggested a, a new Mount Rushmore? Such types of things would not fly in today's ethos. They, modernism produced the Eiffel Tower. Modernism produced the Statue of Liberty. Modernism produced all that stuff. You're not going to see that stuff in this climate again. Carrie, bring us home. Four minutes. Oh, is it Carrie? Yes. Okay. Okay, so kind of from the sermon to summarize it. Back like, to the text? Yeah. Novel idea. Close it out, hopefully with some application too at the Woo. end. Okay. So kind of the idea that you drew us to at the end is that we know that like money or power, those things aren't going to do anything for us eternally perspective. Right. Um, so all we have is Christ. So how do we focus on that when also knowing that like living in America and even among living in America, like living in America, a lot of us are greatly blessed. Mm -hmm. So, like, how do we hold both of those things at the same time? Of like, all I have is Christ, and really knowing and understanding what that means all the way through, mm -hmm. but also recognizing I have these gifts or talents or blessings or money or power or whatever. Um, how do we steward those things at the same time? All right. I have two minutes to go. I'll see what I can do. Okay, great. That is a great question. Um, what I said earlier, and I, and I tried to qualify it, what your possessions will not directly affect your eternity, and I said not directly, indirectly they will, because of course how you use them, what you spend them on, what you do with them will affect your eternity. Uh, so the issue is not to go live in a monastery. Um, we sing all we have is Christ, but most of us have cars and clothing and cell phones and shoes, right, and homes. Um, 
What do we mean all we have is Christ? That's the only thing we have that can't be taken from us. That's the only thing we have that's of value. If we then order everything else around that supreme value, I think we can understand them rightly. It was Augustine who said, he loves anything too little who loves it not for your sake. I'm bungling it. But he's basically saying is, what I enjoy about coffee, I need to enjoy as the good gift from the living God that exists for his purposes. What I enjoy about my family, are these are his children that he's given to my stewardship for his purpose. If I can view them in that line, I can then enjoy them rightly and use them rightly, and there's all sorts of good stuff to be had there. If I view them as ultimate ends, they will not satisfy, I can't take them with me, and they will not, they're meaningless in that sense. If I make a god out of them, then they are useless um, and worse than that. We've, and there are people who make gods of these things, and you know, all false gods tend to be harsh taskmasters. Um, and so the short two-minute, because we're out of time, answer is you've got to put them in relationship to what is ultimate. So in light of what is ultimate, we all have some amount of money, I'm guessing, even if it's just you know, two nickels. Are you going to spend it and, and pursue it like it's all that matters, or are you going to pursue it and pursue it? Because I think you're going to live differently and make different financial choices if you're viewing eternity and a God who's redeemed you and will receive you, then if you think this is all there is under the sun. I, I think you're going to spend, pursue money, spend money and power and clout differently that way. That's the two-minute answer, but um, I got it. Yes? Micah 6.6. Elsa needs a microphone so she can read it. We can be done. No, no, no. Elsa, you're going to read it for us and we're going to be done. We will be done. Right here we go. Micah 6.6. Six. It's better be good, Elsa. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rains, rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. You are dismissed.